Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, we're waiting news on a potential deal in the media space. Amazon reportedly is in talks to acquire the film studio MGM, the reported price tag, is up to uh, perhaps as high as $9 billion. Let's break down this potential deal with Mark Douglas. He's the CEO of Steelhouse. Mark, thanks so much for joining us here. You know, I look at Amazon and the gajillion dollar, you know, almost a $2 trillion market cap, got tremendous amounts of cash on the balance sheet. Why are they, you know, you can look at MGM. It's a great, great film studio, tremendous history, lots of great content, but it's kind of small in the scheme of things. If is if Amazon's really serious about the content business and maybe really competing against Netflix and Disney, why don't they go out and buy something big, like maybe even a Netflix or Disney, at the very least something like a Viacom, CBS? Why are they just kind of dipping their toe here with a, a $9 billion deal for MGM? Yeah, so I think that's the question that everyone has. I mean, Amazon is in the streaming business with Amazon Prime, but I think if you were to ask, you know, virtually anyone really um, to name a streaming service, you know, it would be hard pressed for anyone to actually name Prime as, as one of those services because people get Prime to get their packages delivered for free, not in order to watch movie content and other content. And so that's a dilemma um, Amazon has, and, and they're really not um, investing in any huge way with this deal. I, I think most people have. Uh, expect it, but aren't, you know, excited about it. The Prime layout is even worse than the Netflix layout in terms of, you know, the, the user interface. I mean, both are pretty bad. I don't know why they can't match Apple, but um, what would be the best way then? Uh, do you think an acquisition is the best way for Amazon to do better in that space? Do you think um, they, is there a specific target that you have in mind, Mark? Yeah, well, I think the deal that Discovery did was the deal to do because, you know, HBO Max is the key. Oh, yeah. If you want, yeah, if you want to get viewers, it starts with original content. And even that's not enough. Apple spends more money on original content than anyone. And, and, and you know, name a show that you love on, on Apple TV+. Plus. So I think, you know, both these companies have, you know, huge amounts of money. They both spend, Apple is at least spending in the area that they're hoping finally breaks through and gets them that big hit that, that you know, essentially um, gets all the viewers to get excited, you know, like A Handmaid's Tale or in the past A Game of Thrones and things like that. But Amazon's not even doing that. So I think. Can I just um, say Ted Lasso is really underrated? I, don't, I love it. I just I finished season one. Based on your recommendation there, Matt, it's I great. Th I just don't think people know how funny it is. It's smart, but it's <laughs> yep. also kind of heartwarming. Um, I mean, it's not like a, a Veep or a Silicon Valley, um, but it's really, really good. They, di they just didn't, they don't get the recognition mark for that, do they? Or for like. Uh, for all mankind also was quite good. It just doesn't get the um, the credit. Yeah, well, I mean, I I agree in some sense, but you know, I'm I'm watching startup on Netflix. You know, it costs a lot less money. Um, some I don't think a lot of people know about it. Great show. So Netflix cranks out these shows, yeah, you know, literally true, by true. the week that people love, 
and they have incredible technology to figure out what their users want to see. And meanwhile, Apple has got a fire hose of money that's just spraying around Hollywood, and yeah, and and they're just not getting the same result. And Amazon is now doing the same, and they're not going to get the same result either. Well, Tara LaChapelle of Bloomberg Opinion Columns is out with a great, uh, another great column today looking at this potential deal and saying, hey, you know, you think about the Whole Foods business, that didn't, wasn't really a game changer for, for Amazon or even the industry. Um, and she's kind of saying, hey, this deal kind of feels like a Whole Foods where they're not really all in. But boy, you look, uh, Mark, at some of these other companies, um, you know, what does this Viacom CBS do? What does the Fox do? I mean, we thought... You, you just wonder with, you know, market caps that are $20, 27000000000 billion that they just don't seem like they're competitive enough in terms of scale and kind of where the world's going. Again, you, look at, you mentioned the, AT, the AT&T and, and Discovery deal. Yeah, but, I mean, it starts with vision. I mean, if you ask anyone at Amazon what is this deal going to accomplish, I, I don't think they're going to give you a visionary or exciting result. But if you ask the head of Discovery, what he what he's going to accomplish, what his vision, I think he knows and he's willing to put the dollars on the table and the effort to accomplish it. And so if you want to win in Hollywood, all the biggest players, Netflix, Disney, with Disney Plus, now Discovery, what they're doing with HBO Max and the other assets they bought, they all share one common thread, you know, a thread, which is they have vision they have original content, and they have huge libraries of other content to go with it. And if you want to be a real player, you need all of those chips on the table. Does the sports aspect help at Amazon? They're getting Are they getting Thursday Night Football? I think they are getting Thursday Night Football on Prime, right? Does that help a lot, or...? Um, I mean, it forces me to go use the app, you know, to go to the website if that's content I want to watch. So in that sense, it does help. But I don't see anyone can say that it measurably increases the footprint of Amazon or anyone is leaving watching, you know, that NFL content and is now, you know, basically going to consume more hours on Prime than they are on Netflix. So so it it helps, you know, in terms of some awareness, but I don't think it really moves them up the food chain in terms of their position in the streaming market. Hey, Mark, you, you know, at Steelhouse, you guys uh, work with a lot of advertisers, a lot of brands. What are the advertisers, what is Madison Avenue saying about all this consolidation in the media space? Is it a good thing? Is it something to be concerned about? What are you hearing? Yeah, I think, I mean, remember for the advertisers, what they want is good ad-supported content, right? So you have streaming subscription-supported content. That's Netflix, and then you have ad-supported content, which is what Discovery and other, a number of other um, companies are doing. And so those advertisers, I think they like these deals you know, because you know, there's a lot of revenue that has to be generated, and that keeps these studios and everything firmly seated in ad-supported content, which the brands need in order to reach the consumer. Baseball is dying I wonder, I, I, you're not a huge fan, right? But I wonder what you think about at the Major League Baseball. If we could just ask quickly, because it's like every game is a no-hitter and um, the average is down to 230s or something. Um, is, is is this in your, uh, in your window at all here, Mark? I, I wouldn't say I'm not a huge fan. I actually love the game and love a really good game. So I think what you're articulating is it's getting harder and harder to find them. And so I think, you know, baseball is always going to be part of Americana. And I think the league just has to, you know, really um, make 
bring in the players and, and, and have the rules and everything give us short, exciting games, and they will get all the viewers they need. All right, Mark, thanks very much. Mark Douglas there. He is the CEO of Steelhouse. I always bring up baseball with him because I know he grew up right across the street from Yankee <laughs> Stadium. And, ah, and that makes sense now. Okay. Became a Mets, became a Mets fan. <laughs> All right, uh, this is Bloomberg. Let's bring in Mark Roberts. As um, Paul was saying, he's a co-founder and owner of 1111 Hotel and Residences in Miami, And, Mark, let me first ask you a question. We've talked to a lot of hotel and restaurant owners and operators throughout um, the Southeast who have told us it's very difficult to hire people right now. Have you had the same experience? Uh, Yes. uh, We've had a little little issue with the hiring at the beginning, but because our strong brand, our strong name, and our recognition, and people understand when they uh, work for us, it can be very lucrative. We've had a lot of people showing up in the last couple of weeks. And we're going to have a full staff probably another week or two. We'll be fully staffed with the old. First, you have to hire them. Then you have to show them the culture. And then you have to train them. But we'll have a full staff ready and raring to go uh, very shortly. So, Mark, there's. I know you have your 1111 uh, brand uh, in Miami. Talk to us about the Miami market. It's just got to be one of the hottest markets in the country. Talk to us about how it's kind of evolved over the course of the last 14 months. Uh, sure. Well, 11 hotel residents, of course, are leading the charge. Well, we sold out basically almost uh, $400 million for real estate in just under a month. And Miami's become such a hot market uh, for a bunch of reasons. I think people first started moving to Miami because of the tax situation, get away from high taxes. I think they also like the political atmosphere, pro-business. Uh, and then they get to Miami and they understand the quality of life is unbelievable. All of a sudden, they're boating, they're on the water, the weather has been fantastic. All they see is uh, people you know, feeling good, working out, and then they get there and they start seeing that business is booming. The restaurant, like almost every restaurant you can name, there's lines to get in, there's, you know, everybody's selling, the condo units are selling, things are renting, houses are selling at crazy prices on multiples of what they went for just a year, a year and a half ago. And I, and I, and I really believe that New, New York and these other areas like San Francisco, L.A., Chicago, the major cities are losing all these people. Uh, the people are coming to Miami and understand that Miami is much more than just a tourist place. Now, Miami is coming the most major city there is probably in the world, and it's really grown up to be what's going to be the epicenter of business. I mean, all the tech that's coming in there now is just incredible. And, and you know, as restaurants, as restaurants see... All the other restaurants are being successful. Um, for instance, like Carbone came down from New York. They're opening up 20 new restaurants. Then all oh. the, It's like a stampede. It's like a, it's like a, a herd mentality. <laughs> you know? the, and, and everybody sees the numbers. I mean, the numbers per square foot is just incredible. And I, everybody is shattering records. And, and, and you know, as you know, the restaurant guys follow the restaurant guys. So there's an influx of top, top, top restaurants. I mean, it's really been called a culinary center of the universe so so what have you done to because it's not a hotel and residence just the beginning for 11 11 you've got um one of the most famous i guess nightclub spots in the u.s uh, everybody wants to go and see you've got shows uh with djs rappers but you've got burlesque you got trapeze acts you've got also other 
um, products like uh, your own vodka brand. How how are you branching out into into this economy? What we're doing is you know, we've become such a strong name recognition uh, among really almost to all sectors. Uh, it's the lifestyle. You live your life, live a better life. So what we're doing is we've now formed a separate IP division, intellectual property division, and we're staffing that up, and we're going to create a multi-multi-billion-dollar brand. How are we going to do that? 11 hotel and residences. We open them up all over the world. Uh, we're going to be uh, rebranding the vodka. is unbelievable. We just launched it this year, and Nikki Simpkins, who's my partner's wife, is a CEO, is doing a tremendous job. And we literally, in all over Florida, we're dominating Florida, and we're going to be taking that vodka national soon. And, you know, for first year, I think we're breaking records there. Everybody, the vodka, by the way, won the double gold award in San Francisco last month. It's a top award for a spirit. So the taste is unbelievable. So you always have to have the quality. People know that 11 stands for quality. When you're dealing with 11, you're going to get first class, first notch, top quality. It's going to be the best. And that's really what people relate to it. And, of course, all IPs are built on uh, the brand and brand awareness, which we have incredible brand awareness. I'm per square foot, the most profitable nightclub in the world by far. I don't think anybody's even close. We're only 13,000 square feet, even though people think it's huge. Um, But like you said, the lines have been around the block. I mean, we literally have 500 to 1,000 people waiting to get in now. Right. Uh, Yeah, $75 cover charges sometimes. (laughs) And people pay it no problem. Well, no, no, we've, we've, believe it or not, we've been having like $200 uh, cover charges just because we've been having great acts, the aerial acts. I mean, we right. spend a lot of money to make sure the experience inside is, is you know, people leave there thinking they got value. So we spend a lot of money, you know, putting on yep. the shows and, and, you know, making sure we have the great service and the right. staff is, you know, very professional. You know, it looks easy, but yep. it uh, takes a lot of work. It <laughs> takes a little bit more work. Hey, <laughs> hey Mark, uh, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time. Mark Roberts, co-founder and owner of an 1111 Hotel and Residence in Miami. Uh, certainly, uh, the Miami's been just an incredibly hot market, uh, really accelerated during this pandemic. Well, it seems like over the last several days, inflation concerns in the marketplace are waning just a little bit. I'm looking at the 10-year here. Here, uh, 1.577%. That's off a couple of basis uh, basis points today. Uh, let's see how things are going in the municipal bond market, which, which has been one of one of the hottest markets out there. Michael Zezas, Chief U.S. Public Policy and Municipal Strategist for Morgan Stanley, joins us. Michael, talk to us about the municipal bond market. It's had such a great run. Um, there are some inflation fears out there in the marketplace, uh, maybe ebbing a little bit over the past several days. How's the municipal bond market reacted to that? Yeah, I think the municipal bond market is not really reflecting any meaningful concern about inflation at the moment. I actually think the place to start here is that credit quality in the market unabashedly year over year is substantially improved and probably will continue to improve meaningfully. But the the challenge now is that a lot of that good news is already in the price. You've got valuations, no matter how you slice it, uh, yield ratios versus treasuries, quality spreads, all uh, kind of pre-COVID tights. And so what that means is that if you've got good fundamentals and they're going to continue to improve, 
but relative valuations are pretty tight. It's probably something outside the municipal bond market that would have to make things cheapen up. And this is why we say we don't think they're really particularly priced for inflation. If you got some meaningful um, upside in inflation or the Fed had to start talking about tapering sooner, our concern would be in that scenario that you could get a bear steepening of the Treasury curve. Mini market historically has not done well in those situations. It tends to lead to outflows. And because it's a long-only market um, dominated by long-only investors, you tend to get cheapness on the back end of that. So in some ways, we think the real risk in the muni market is some of these inflation prints, even though it wouldn't tell you much about credit quality. It wouldn't tell you that credit quality is getting any worse. Sorry, my microphone was off. Okay, so credit quality, um, and we kind of all braced ourselves for a difficult time here pre-pandemic or during the pandemic, and it hasn't happened. Do you expect any changes throughout the next quarter or two? Yeah, not particularly. And I mean, I, you know, I traveled the same journey you did. I mean, we put out an initial estimate around this time last year of what the cumulative 50-state a budget shortfall was going to be versus the revenue estimate, and our base case was about $270 billion. Um, that number appears to be on paper now, we're still counting things, substantially lower. And then, of course, on top of that, in the COVID relief bill earlier this year, the federal government appropriated $350 billion of aid. So in the state and local sector, you got plenty of money to cover potential shortfalls. The money that was appropriated via um, the other aid packages uh, put plenty of money into the hospital system, the airport system. So this is a sector, broadly speaking, most municipal sectors are not just riding the V-shaped economic recovery. They're also given plenty of cash by the federal government. And so you you wouldn't expect to see anything uh, directionally negative show up on income statements or balance sheets over the course of this year. Michael, where are you guys seeing value here in the municipal bond market? Where are you guys spending some time? Yeah, it's tough because a lot of the value has been squeezed out here on a relative basis. The sectors that we still like here are airports and higher education. So certainly the relative yield you can get here is not nearly as much as it was during the pandemic or the height of the pandemic. You know, these were sectors where there's a lot of concern about yeah, their economic model relies on population density, on people being together. Um, so in some ways, you saw their fundamentals decrease the most. Uh, and here we think the trajectory out of the pandemic is going to benefit the fundamentals there the most. So there's a little bit of extra yield left there. And, and frankly, we just think that when there isn't, the market's not giving you a lot of spread to go credit picking. You might as well put things in your portfolio that you think have the sharpest positive fundamental trajectory. I'm curious to know about your your career, Michael. Um, I don't want to get too personal, but I think it's fascinating. You studied um, political economy at Georgetown, public affairs at Austin. Then you went, uh, you were a Coro fellow, went to Fitch. Then you were on the buy side. I mean, how did you get from there to here? Yeah, I, I don't know, actually. I mean, a little, a, little, a little bit of luck, a little bit of accident, happenstance. I mean, I think, you know, for me... Um, municipal market was always fascinating because it was about taking the numbers uh, that are in financial statements and seeing through to what the actual policy choices that were being made were. And then really, I think to be any to be a good municipal credit analyst, you really have to have a forecasting ability about national policy, tax policy, healthcare policy, et cetera. Yep. And that's a skill set that that then translated into 
broader public policy forecasting for other markets. So unconventional path, I suppose, but it worked out. Well, I just think it's fascinating because you have that public policy background, and now we're in a situation where we're looking at you know, trillions of dollars in fiscal spending and even more in Fed assistance. And I mean, really, um, really a paradigm shift in the way um, the U.S. economy is operated from a government level, right? We went from the the Reagan years making smaller government, deregulating, and, and now 40 years later, we're just turning a corner here. Does that inform your investment strategy? Well, I mean, absolutely. I think you, as an investor, you sort of learn to, if you, if you want to track these things correctly, to take your personal views about what you want to happen uh, in Washington, D.C. or any other state capital out of it, and you focus on what will happen. And right now, we have a very polarized uh, electorate in the U.S., and therefore a disincentive to bipartisanship. And what it tells you is that the when one party or the other has control, that's the only, uh, or sort of the, likely the best time to get any legislation done. And legislation tends to get done um, only in the way that all members of a party can agree upon. So when you overlay it on what you're talking about on fiscal policy, uh, it means that when you know, Republicans have been in power, they can all agree on tax cuts. You tend to get fiscal expansion that way. When Democrats are in power, they can all agree on the spending side, less so on the tax side. And until the electorate is going to punish someone for deficit spending, uh, maybe because you actually see inflation impacting people's uh, disposable income, well, then the incentives to just kind of keep pushing the deficit wider I think that's what sets up for the for the spending that you've seen so far this year and that we think is going to continue. All right, Michael, thanks very much for joining us. Pleasure having you on the program. Michael Zizas there, Chief U.S. Public Policy and Muni Strategist at Morgan Stanley. I remember he did a great podcast with Ritholtz, a Master's in Business ah, podcast yeah. a few years ago that, that I loved. So I'm glad we got to get him on. This is Bloomberg. You know, since the beginning of this pandemic, you know, when the markets across the board just cratered, one market showed incredible resiliency. And it just amazed me. And that's the real estate market, whether it's existing homes, new homes, housing starts. You know, the numbers were generally really strong throughout the pandemic. And uh, we got some more data today, but it's just an amazing market. Let's kind of dig into it. We can do that with Craig Giamone. He's a real estate reporter for Bloomberg News. He actually joins us again live in this Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, the first guest I've had in this studio uh, in 14 months. So it's you're the first, uh, Craig. Thanks so much for coming in here. Talk to us about some of the data we saw today. I know the U.S. No, uh, new home sales fell by more than forecast, but I mean, the demand's still out there, right? The demand is definitely still out there. And I think in the two reports that we got today, Case Schiller plus new home sales, you're seeing kind of the, the way the trend is playing out. As you said, Back last April, things froze. You know, there was not much transactions. People thought real estate prices were going to fall. But as soon as people started moving again a little bit, home prices have just been on a steady climb. I mean, there's demographic tailwinds. The millennial generation is at home buying age. They're having that second kid. There's demand for extra space for offices, for remote learning. So the suburbs are about as hot as they've been in 15 or 20 years. And there's nothing to buy. There's a severe inventory shortage. Basically, every home that hits the market moves in record speed. There's cash offers, bidding wars. So incredible demand for houses in the United States. The question is, are the prices going to run out ahead of the demand and keep those first time buyers? The millennial couple that's looking for something in that $300,000, $400,000 range, it's very, very tough out there right now. And I, I do think that's what you're seeing in new home sales. 
I, I know my brother's looking for a place in the tri-state area, and every time they put in an offer, they are instantly overbid by like five or six different people. I know somebody who just bought a place in the D.C. area without even having seen it. Yep. Very, um, very common. Yeah, that's just, to me, that seems crazy, like uh, buying a used car without test driving it. It's just absolutely nuts, but I guess you got to do that. Um, why, why aren't we seeing a ton of new supply come online? In a market where you see prices going up 10% or 12 13% per month, um, doesn't that make construction workers want to go out and build spec houses? Um, it does. And I think two things on that. I mean, I think as far as existing homes, I think some of the older people that own those bigger homes in the suburbs have not sold them because maybe the kid from college moved back in in the pandemic. Suddenly they like that big place in Greenwich or Westchester because they have room for the entire family. So people have been on the sidelines, the people that typically would be downsizing at this life stage. And, you know, we went into this with a severe shortage. And I think the builders have ramped up as fast as they can, but you've also seen a situation where it's so hot and lumber is going up so much that the builders are kind of deliberately slowing things down because they don't want to lock in a price right now because in two months the price could be up 10%. So, you know, a lot of factors, but we went into this with a huge supply shortage and I do think the millennial sort of demographic tailwind is a big factor here. So Craig, when we talk about new housing, one of the areas that had been problematic, I think, from just the market's perspective is Builders weren't building a lot of new entry homes. They're buying, you know, building the McMansions and things like that, the trade-up homes. Are have they sensed that there is a market for that move-in, early first buyer kind of house? I think they know that that market exists, and some of them at least pay lip service to that. But I think what you're seeing there also is that, you know, it costs about the same to build that eight hundred thousand dollar home. You know, with the, with the way lumber is, with land, right. labor, that you know, Toll Brothers or one of these other guys is looking at it and saying. I could build a house for 450. There's cert- I could certainly sell that, but I could sell this home for 800 too. So why don't I build that one? The margins are better. So it's a it's a massive problem. I think um, there's an affordability crisis that's looming here, where you have a generation of people that you know are going to have a very very hard time buying that first home when if things stay like this. I've always thought I, I wish I could do this job broadcasting for Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Television. Um, remotely and get a place in like rural Montana. So for me, that's just not going to be a possibility. I'll, t- I'll talk to Al from Jersey about that one. But but for others, um, Craig, that's become a real possibility uh, in the pandemic. And now it looks like post pandemic. Are you seeing things spread out a little bit due to that? A hundred percent. I mean, I think places like the Hamptons, places like Aspen, Tahoe, those are those are places that went crazy in the pandemic because people said, okay, I don't have to go into my office in Midtown anymore. You know, now I can live wherever I want. I mean, we'll see. I think the, the, the narrative that, you know, Midtown offices were dead was way overblown a year ago. Obviously, we're seeing people start to trickle back. I think there's a lot of people waking up in the Catskills. You know, now the boss is saying, you have to come back, wondering, you know, why did we buy this place that's two and a half <laughs> hours from Midtown Manhattan? So it'll be interesting to see, you know, what flex work means. I think in a world where you have to be in the office three days a week, you know, it's still, you don't want to go so far out. And you know something, houses near transit in New Jersey have remained pretty hot, Long Island, Westchester. So I think some people did leave the city. They wanted to get bigger properties. A lot of that was life stage demographics, but 
you know, I, office, as offices reopen, it'll be interesting to see if things stay so frothy in these more remote locations. I mean, Kingston, New York has led the home price gains, I think, for two quarters in a row. You know, that's people that's a lot of that's vacation homes, but that's also people that figured they would never have to go back to the office. All right. Interesting stuff. Obviously, everyone cares um, because everyone's on one side of the trade or the other in the U.S., right? I right. mean, <laughs> e- either your site because your house is appreciating like crazy and it's probably for a lot of people, um, for most people, their biggest asset and, or you're bummed because you want to buy a house and you can't afford it. That's right. Um, and that's why the market seems to have come to a standstill. Great to have Craig Giamona there, Bloomberg real estate reporter, in the studio yeah. with Paul. Wow, the times, they are a-changing, but I'm guessing you're both fully vaxxed. We so. are fully vaxxed. It's all good to go. That's awesome. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.